Welcome to Enscope, the healthcare security podcast. Each episode, we bring you interviews, technical tips, and a unique point of view on the challenges facing the ever-changing healthcare ecosystem. Here's your host, Mike Murray. Welcome to the Enscope podcast from Scope Security. My name is Danny Akotsky, Director of Customer Success for Scope. I know I'm not the voice you're used to hearing on these episodes. Sadly, that voice, Mike Murray, CEO and founder of Scope Security, passed away on April 7th, 2022. Prior to his passing, Mike had recorded three new episodes of InScope. We present one of those now in its entirety, both in memory of Mike and in celebration of his vision for Scope Security, which the entire Scope team now shepherds into the future on behalf of that team and on behalf of Mike. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of InScope, the healthcare security podcast. As always, I'm Mike Murray. And with us this week, we get to do another one of these departures into Hackerland, and it's going to be really exciting. With us this week is John Hammond. And John does some of the coolest videos I've seen on YouTube around hacking, and I'm sure we're going to get into it. But first of all, John, welcome. But John, tell the world about you. Tell the audience who you are and how you ended up doing all these crazy things. Alrighty. Well, hey there, Mike. Thanks so much for letting me come crash the party over here. I, I don't mean to be cramping your style or anything, but I'm, I'm super flattered and honored just to be here to hang out with you all. I don't mean to just start going down the story like no one needs to bear through <laughs> a career or anything, but I'm happy to fill anyone in with the stuff that I'm up to these days. My name is John Hammond. As Mike was alluding to, I have a, a silly YouTube channel where I showcase a lot of cybersecurity content, a lot of education for penetration testing and ethical hacking, bug bounty and vulnerabilities and exploits and all of that nerdy, geeky stuff. It's a ton of fun, something I do as a passion out on the side. But for my day job, I'm working at a company called Huntress that manages threat detection and making hackers earn their access, trying to better security for the 99%. So a ton of fun. It definitely is. And we're both very lucky to work in that threat detection space. It's a, it's a good time. But, but I've always believed that if you want to be a great defender, you have to have a sense of, of what offense is and what attackers are up to. And you've got this incredible library of content. We'll, we'll talk about some examples later. But how did you get into putting this stuff on YouTube? I mean, I said it to you before we got on. I mean, we all study this stuff. We all read this stuff, do exercises and stuff. But I would never think to like, hey, I'm going to record this and make a video for other people. How does that cross your mind? And what's happened since you did it? Like, what do you get out of it? I'm, I'm a million questions in case it's not obvious, but just talk about it. Well, I mean, thank you. I, I super appreciate all the interest. It's, it's fun. A little bit of a story, I suppose, right? Because I grew up the same way any kind of kid or, or fellow does when they say, hey, I want to I grow up to make video games or I want to grow up to be a hacker because all that stuff sounds cool. You see it in the movies and it's, I don't know, something really, really interesting. Uh, so I would Google that. Hey, you got a computer in front of you. I'd, I'd ask the internet and I'd found like YouTube videos, stuff on how to program in this coding language, how to explore Linux operating systems or play with Python, C and C++. I don't mean to get too nerdy, um, but that really opened the floodgates. And that's how I learned was through video, was watching other people kind of do some show and tell and demonstrations. Eventually, probably earlier than I should have in real, <laughs> in all reality, I thought to myself, Hey, you wouldn't it be kind of cool if I tried to make 
these same sort of videos? What if I tried to showcase some stuff while I'm learning and what I'm learning? And it started off very, very small, pretty low quality, right? It's baby steps and, and creating content. But it was a lot of fun because I could see an interaction with an audience. And while I was learning something, I could publicly show myself learning. And that means making a lot of mistakes. That means failing. That means <laughs> making a bunch of typos and hitting the backspace key over and over and over again. But I'd have, hey, people correct me, which I didn't see as a bad thing because then I learn, then I get better and they get better. And I don't know, it, it's just really, really cool because, you know, you get to that tidbit where people say, the best way to tell if you really learned something or if you've mastered something is to try and teach it yourself where you can showcase it. And that's been a ton of fun. I've seen it grow now. Honestly, the stuff dates back to like 2009, 2010. I guess I've been doing that for a decade now, but it really got the ball rolling in, in 2018. <laughs> yep, more than a decade, man. It's crazy. We all get old that way. So something that, that I'm, I'm fascinated on, I want to I call out, most of us, and we all went to school, right? And we all went to school in a way that we learned that our teachers were supposed to be infallible, right? The teachers at the front of the room, and they never make a mistake, and they have the textbook with the answers in it, so they're always right. And the students are always the ones making mistakes. And you were just talking about making mistakes in front of the audience. Tell me about that experience and, and your own ego around it and also like how that affects the viewer and the student and all of that sort of thing. Yeah. Oh, sweet. So thank you for asking. I watch a lot of videos and YouTube and content and stuff where people do offer a flashy, you know, a super cool, quick and punchy video of something that they're showcasing. And it's well edited. It's got all the sound effects. It's got the zoom and pans. And I love that stuff. It looks fantastic. And I'm honestly very, very jealous because I, I would love to do something like that. But by golly, it takes a lot of time, <laughs> like way too much time. And I thought, man, if I want to keep doing the stuff that I want to do, and if I want to keep putting out content and just doing it, it's going to have to be raw. It's going to have to be like a, a genuine screencast, like, hey, I'm, I'm sharing my screen in a Zoom call or something. It's just, This is you shoulder surfing, seeing what I'm typing on the keyboard. And for some reason, I think that's been pretty well received because people can see me make all those mistakes. And I feel bad, honestly, when like, oops, I just wasted five minutes because I forgot a semicolon or something stupid. Sometimes I, I drag myself in and out of a rabbit hole and hit my head against the wall. But I don't know. I also think there's a lot of value in that kind of, as you said, because it teaches the people that are watching a certain amount of grit, a certain amount of dedication, stubbornness and troubleshooting and debugging and being able to pull yourself out of a problem and look around and kind of figure out, okay, where might have I gone wrong in putting something together, trying to solve a task or challenge, et cetera. I don't know. I hope there is value in that, but so far it, it seems to be doing okay. Yeah. I mean, people seem to, to keep tuning in. So something there about that is right. But actually something you said, I mean, you, you work in this field that to me sounds like more of everyone's every day. Right. Hacking is not what you see in the movies where everybody types everything in the right time and the exploit works 100 percent of the time fully reliably. And so I, I wonder if in some ways you're giving a better picture of reality. Than, by the way, so 
an old, old story of mine. I used to run a company called the Hacker Academy, where we did, in around 2009, that sort of polished video training and a lot of that stuff. And you're not kidding about how much time it takes and how much work it is to get it right. But I actually look back on that and I wonder if we would have done our students a much better service to teach them how the real world works, you know, how hacking actually feels. And, and I wonder what you think about that, because I actually think it's a feature, not a bug in what you're doing. Yeah, it's not as sexy, right? It's not as cool. It's not as flashy. But if the student, if the individual listening in and watching in can have sort of the stomach for that long form content, that long form studying, it's really what it is, what it takes, right? And it's sometimes a hard pill to swallow. I think especially someone that says, hey, I want to get into this scene. I want to be in this industry. There's a lot to it. It's like a mountain of, of stuff to climb. Whether you're looking at industry certifications or whether you're looking at a degree or you're going for masters, et cetera, there's so many different ways to learn and upskill what you're doing in cybersecurity. But all of it takes some grit and tenacity. <laughs> And that, I think, is so important. Actually, you brought up certifications and the like. I, I'm curious. This is such a new world, right? What you're doing is so different than the old way of, like, let's go to a SANS course or, or let's go get a CISSP. How do you see those two things kind of merging as time goes on? Do you see more teaching like you do. And like, I mean, we recently had Ipsec on who does some of the CTF stuff on videos. I feel like there's this whole new world out there that didn't exist when I was coming up as a security person. How do you see that changing the certification landscape and, and a lot of that sort of thing? Or do you even think about that? Yeah, it's something that I am kind of stuck in it and I don't take my head out of the equation all too often, but I think it's really good to do so because what you're mentioning and like, hey, we might have paid an arm and a leg to go to this formal business professional training. And that's a, a pretty penny, right? <laughs> but when you had brought Ipsec on, another another content creator, he's an incredible fella. He's a wizard. That guy's much smarter than me, I will be the first to admit. But we do this thing called Capture the Flag. And you noted it there with that CTF acronym, Capture the Flag. And in my mind, that's taking a lot of cybersecurity and computer science education and making it a game. It's making it a sport. It's making it a puzzle, a toy, because the player who's playing capture the flag might have a couple tasks put in front of them. They say, hey, break into this website or hey, find in the memory forensics on a hard drive or RAM and shenanigans like that. Can you find a special key or a token? And that is the flag that you can find and validate and prove you've accomplished this task. That makes it a lot of fun because there's an element of competition to it. You are competing in trying to raise your score on a leaderboard or a scoreboard to say, hey, can I solve another challenge? Can I learn something new or get exposed to a different technology? And that is very, very different than a you're sitting in the classroom listening to a lecture, waiting for the clock to strike the hour. It's hands-on. You're playing capture flag. It's practical. It's all application-based, and I think that has a lot of value to it because that's really it. You're in the scene. You're on the keyboard. You're being an operator, and that's where you get the most value and the most learning. When that comes to certifications and industry training, I'm a huge proponent of those certifications that require a hands-on portion. But are we going to end up paying an arm and a leg for it? I don't know. I think the world and the industry is kind of changing in that like, a lot of this stuff is so accessible because I can find it on YouTube because I can see a cyber range like a TryHackMe or a Hack the Box or other online platform to be able to play, to be able to tinker, to be able to explore and learn. 
it's funny as you were talking about sort of the marriage between these sort of the sort of gamified practical environment and the training class, the the sort of sans old school model. I was thinking, and and I think you were thinking about this. I, I was thinking about the OSCP, right? In terms of the practical nature of that certification, and there's a lot of book learning that goes into that. But I don't think that they've necessarily gamified it to the level of a CTF. But you could sort of see those two things coming together with in emerging way where where the certification test looks like a CTF. Mm. I'd have to think. I, forgive me, I hadn't tuned into the conversation that you had had with Ipsec, but I know there's some juicy and, and uh, cool conversations to chat about when you say, are the training environments like this, are the cyber ranges and the, the hack the boxes, the tri-hackings of the world, are they realistic? Are they real world in air quotes when they're in a capture the flag? And I think Ipsec, and I know I certainly would attest like, no, there's so much value in whether or not it is real world, quote unquote, for a penetration test or a vulnerability assessment, because you learn that grit, that debugging, that troubleshooting, that when things go wrong or you didn't solve the problem as you thought you would have, how can you reapproach it? How can you reattack it? That is just invaluable in my mind. Yeah, I completely agree. I 100% agree. All right, I'm going to turn I'm going to turn us in a different direction for just a second because one of the most recent videos that you did, probably not the most recent, but recent, was a real teardown of Log4j. And it's on everybody's mind and it's all we've talked about for the last couple of months. But do you want to tell everybody about that experience, about the video and and really like let's give everybody a trailer and make them go watch that one cuz I I particularly like that one. Yeah, thank you. So, I'll cover a little bit of ground, some foundation here for whatever reason folks don't happen to know. Log4j or Log4Shell was a vulnerability, a widespread large, hey, the sky is falling vulnerability in December of 2021. It's a weakness in a piece of code that's tucked away in a library, like a module that could be plug and play in other software and applications. Turns out, because that thing was vulnerable, that made bunch of other stuff vulnerable. <laughs> and this is a vulnerability for remote code execution, meaning the bad guys, the threat actors and the adversaries can basically do whatever they want with the victim or the target. They can compromise it and then make it do whatever, like command and control, access, shenanigans like drop in ransomware or mining cryptocurrency or whatever you want to extrapolate to some bad exploit thing. Log4j caught a lot of news because of that potential and the attack surface, and that we saw a lot of things in the real world vulnerable to it. VMware Horizon, different vendors providing their own software and their own products. I think there was even some spook stuff, oh, Tesla, Apple, blah, blah, blah. But one thing that was really interesting in my mind that was vulnerable and affected by this was a video game and a cheesy kids video game. Or I don't know if anyone listening has, has children, sons or daughters, or maybe they happen to play Minecraft. Minecraft, a Java game written in Java, was vulnerable to this log4j and log4shell vulnerability. So I created a video showcasing how it could be exploited Walking through that vulnerability, setting it up, getting the syntax right, getting the reverse shell to, hey, I'm the adversary. I'm now in the box. I'm in the system, in the victim. I had a lot of fun with that. I think I kind of got it while it was hot, right? That video is doing well, closing in on like, hey, half a million views or something silly. But I thought it was a great opportunity to bridge a couple different audiences. Like 
the gamers of the world or the folks that are just kind of familiar with the cultural impact of a game like Minecraft, it opens the total addressable market and without a better word to say it to people that may not be as familiar with cybersecurity, with vulnerabilities, with exploits, with weaknesses and stuff like this. So I wanted to make that a bridge in that, hey, what is John doing setting up a Minecraft server? Well, it's to hack it. It's to show how these vulnerabilities could affect things that you might use or play with or interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's so interesting. And I always love the idea of using simple things to demonstrate really interesting problems. And healthcare's got this really interesting log4j problem in that there's so many vendors in healthcare, almost all of them use Java in some way. And often you don't even know what component is where, but there's so much interoperability. I love to play with the thought experiment of the electronic health record system. So imagine I go into the patient portal. This is my favorite attack scenario lately. I go into the patient portal that you log into when you're going to your doctor, right? And you go in there and it's like, what's your appointment for? When do you want an appointment? Tell me about your medical history. And in every one of those, you enter the log4j attack string and you press submit. So that document then goes from the patient portal into the electronic health record system. The electronic health record system, then suppose you're going to go get a CT scan. It will send that same record over to the to the RIS and the PACs, which are about cardiology. And then it'll end up on the CT scanner. It will also end up in the billing system. It will also end up in the revenue cycle management system. It will also end up in the analytics system. And if they're doing medical research, it will be exported and packaged up and sent to a bunch of other HL7 interfaces all over the place. And it may look silly when you're doing it on a Minecraft server, but if you're a healthcare person, go watch the video and think about the case that I just said when you watch John's video. It will start to hurt your brain as to what this means ultimately within a health system. And so, John, I wanted to flip around and go in a different direction again, because I'm so fascinated by your career. Like, you've been doing this since you were early on in your career, right? You've been doing these videos. How has this helped you, right? You've helped a lot of people, but how have the YouTube videos helped you become a better security professional, and how has it made your career better? Ooh, so so there are a lot of threads that I'd, I'd love to kind of keep pulling on there before we make that pivot, if that's all oh, right. Oh, yeah. If you want to go log4j, I will, I will go log4j for hours. It's one of my favorite topics. Yeah. Let's come back to the other one. We can bridge these two together and make a good synthesis here. So I think what you were kind of alluding to with that big story of the, hey, the electronic health systems was a lot of things that we try to think about and talk about with these vulnerabilities and that it affects other interconnected components. And you don't know where along that whole domino chain, domino effect of software and applications you don't know where that weakness might even be. So when we tried to create, this again is back to my day job over at Huntress, we tried to make a tool and utility to help find and test, hey, is some code or application vulnerable to this? But if you were to throw it in, just like you said, hey, filling out a records form, where does it go? Because it's funneling through all these different systems and you get into that, maybe this is a buzzword, so slap my wrist if we go to a bad place. (laughs) That's the supply chain, right? That's a programs interconnected one way or the other from one provider to the next. And if you're trying to solve this security problem, which is really hard to do, how do you do it? Because you're using components that might be present in other things that have components here and there and et cetera. And I tried to give a talk on this at a recent conference on, oh, the supply chain vulnerabilities, because we see time and time again, stuff just 
blowing up from exploits like this. I tried to pitch the, you know, software bill of materials, the S-bomb, and I know that's kind of a polarizing concept. So <laughs> I hear you I hear you giggling, Mike. Am I going in the wrong direction? I giggled. We've had we've had Bo Woods on here. We've had the folks from the FDA. I'm an old medical device guy. I used to work work at GE. I'm a huge fan of S-bomb. I'm on the pro S-bomb side because I know how bad most of the medical equipment is from a technology hygiene perspective. And I think it will allow us to hold vendors accountable in a way that we can't hold them accountable today. So keep going. That laugh was, yes, John, like, <laughs> amen, brother, go go get them with the S-bomb. Well, it's so cool and so funny because so many people at that conference, we had a Q&A section and there was like real live audience feedback of people saying, hey, I'm a proponent. Hey, I'm really against it. I don't think it's realistic because arguably it is a hard thing to do. If you're asking literally everyone to take inventory and actually archive all the components in the recipe, if you're making this ingredient list, sometimes that's going to have to go through whatever policy and procedures and the people that need to like actually go through. I think about this in the government and military sense where it could take forever to be able to get new things written down and actually published in a location like SBOM. In which case, if there's a vulnerability and they say, oh, we can't update the list or whatever components until Friday, crap, we're not going to be able to patch. Oh, we're just not going to patch because this is going to take forever. I see the flaws, but I think we have to try. I think that's the best way we can make progress on this is if we put in that effort. Because when stuff hits the fan when there's elite zero day, just blowing stuff up, you're going to want to reach for that S-bomb. And if it's not there, you're going to go ask your vendors and they're going to throw their hands up in the air and say, I don't know. We don't know. Give us another two months to figure it out. That's what healthcare is going through today. And we're recording this in mid-February of 2022. And the Log4j vulnerability came out in December of 2021, almost three months ago to the day. And there are still major medical device manufacturers whose announcement about Log4j vulnerability is still the holding statement they put out in December. No. Yes. Oh, you're making my heart hurt. <laughs> and, and believe me, by the way, the only ones that are actually required to do that are the ones that are producing FDA-regulated medical devices because the FDA post-market guidance requires that they do certain things. For the vendors like Epic and Cerner that do EHRs, they're not regulated in the same way. As far as I'm aware, and this could have changed in the last two weeks because that was the last time I looked, they've said nothing, not one word. Almost every medical record in this country is in that software. And I'm sure they're doing their due diligence and I'm sure they're doing their work. I'm not accusing them of anything, but it's really hard as a health system if you don't have certain information. If you know, Imagine trying to make the determination of the attack scenario I came up with when major components in that system have said nothing about Log4j and whether they're susceptible. Yeah, it's, it's a tough scenario. Healthcare has it uniquely hard, but uniquely, uh, by the way, uniquely good in that from the S-bomb situation, as soon as the FDA says, thou shalt produce an S-bomb, everyone's going to do it. And so, you know, the vendors will, will be held accountable by regulation, unlike a lot of parts of our industry where it's just best effort and they're doing it because their customers ask for it. Having it all, in, I don't know, closer and closer to that mandate or that recommendation, strong encouragement is is a good thing. It might not be, and I don't know, I'm not, I can't see the future. I don't have a crystal ball. I'm not Nostradamus. But I think some movement is better than none at all. Yeah, I completely agree. So are you ready for me to ask you about your career? 
Because I think so many people are interested in in like how we get to be who we are, right? You know this because of your audience. So many people want to become security people. How has all of this helped you? And, you know, if, if you're some other kid out there that's thinking about it, that has the bent, do you go, do you recommend to them to start doing YouTube videos too? Or is it a labor of love or has it helped you out? Yeah. Oh man, there are a lot of cool things to unpack there. So thanks for the, your interest. How I got here, right? There's a little bit of a, of a story to it. And if I am long-winded and verbose, just let me know. I'll throw some virtual tomatoes and all, right? But I got my feet wet and really in security when I attended the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. Obviously, I tried to kind of set the stage earlier. I wanted to learn how to program and how to make things, oh, video games and all that beforehand. And that was fun because I got to learn hey, the software development aspect and programming and coding. But when you get into the government and military space, they care more about is what you made secure? Is it good or bad? Is it safe to use on a production system? Whether that's battlefield, whether that's ship, whether that's it, blah, blah, blah. And that's kind of where it got the ball rolling. I, I, I didn't end up getting a commission and I ended up pivoting over to the Department of Defense Cyber Training Academy. Again, government and military side. That was a lot of fun. It was teaching. It was instructor role. And hopefully that helped kind of do what I do now in conversations and charisma and all this public presence stuff. But then I wanted to keep doing it. I wanted to be an operator. I wanted to have some fun stuff. So I, I hopped over to the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. That sounded super cool. That sounded super elite. Hey, we're going to do some spooky, squirrely stuff. A top secret, no windows, sitting in the room, getting stuff done. Turns out sometimes you have to wait on policies and papers and authority. And we we didn't do a whole lot. Uh, just kind of sitting on our thumbs. Again, waiting to check out. By, by the way, just to, not, not to interrupt your story, but everyone thinks a skiff is cool until they've been in one. Right. <laughs> I'm glad you agree. Yes. I know, again, maybe that's another polarizing topic. <laughs> but <laughs> So eventually the CEO of my current company, Huntress, had reached out to me and said like, hey, John, I know you're doing your whole thing with the government and military side, but you want to come party over here with the MSP space, managed service providers, small to medium businesses. And it's honestly been like the best decision I made because it's so much fun. There's so much work to do. It's a great new challenge and there's stuff happening. So when I'm making this education out on YouTube, when I'm showing videos or I'm doing talks or presentations or hosting Capture the Flag events, all the things in that synthesis, even with Log4j, even with vulnerabilities and incident response, our messaging and our education and all this does help me selfishly. And I don't mean to say that in a braggadocio way, but I mean to say that it's, it's so fulfilling to have people come up to you and say, hey, honestly, you changed my life with some of the stuff that you're showcasing and teaching. Hey, you really helped me sleep better at night because I know you and the crew and the team are all on watch, right? You're you're on lockdown. You're in the trenches fighting this stuff before and helping us better protect and better respond and all those great things. That's where I see a, a whole lot of meaning in, in what I do. And that has helped open doors, that has helped bring incredible opportunities, but it boils down to just the, a certain sense of pride and love for what we do. I think that's incredible. So, John, I always end the same way. Where can the world find more John Hammond? You know, uh, we already know you're on YouTube, but tell the world where we can find more of you. 
Oh, well, thank you so much. Hey, if anyone hasn't seen my face, I am uh, a silly redhead kid wearing glasses. So you see me on, on the internet, <laughs> you'll probably maybe see it plastered in just plenty of other places, whether it's Twitter, just my name, John Hammond, LinkedIn, of course, happy to reach out with anyone if they would like to chat. Again, John Hammond, <laughs> uh, pretty recognizable redhead. So maybe don't hesitate to cyber stalk me on all the social platforms. YouTube is a great place to be, but just as well, GitHub, LinkedIn, Twitter, and email. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Don't be a stranger, please consider me a friend. That's incredible. John, well, I consider you a friend now that we've had this chat. Thank you so much for coming on today, man. I, I, we will have you back again. This was been, has been a blast and, and let's do this again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for putting up with me, man. Oh, thank you, man. <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of InScope. To make sure you never miss an episode, hop on over to www.scopesecurity.com to sign up. Or you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And if you have ideas for topics, guests, or technical tips, please contact us at podcast at scopesecurity.com.